Uh, as we do come back into our series in Joshua this morning, um, in our last session together a fortnight ago, we took a fairly big chunk. We went from chapter 9 to chapter 12, uh, and we recognized that in doing that larger chunk, sometimes that different perspective um, helps us to, to see the, the broader themes, the, the winding threads that are uniting God's word together. Uh, and we're going to continue in that line this morning. And actually, we're going to take an even bigger chunk, but, but bear with me. It'll be all right. Uh, you see, as we've been following our journey through Joshua so far, you'll hopefully know that we've called this, this study Unbreakable. We've been seeking to revel in the reality that the book of Joshua, as well as all of Scripture, of course, the book of Joshua shows us a God who makes and keeps his promises. His words are unbreakable. In fact, if you can remember all the way back to week one, we started by considering one of, these, one of these verses that almost acts as a summary before the conclusion. Chapter 21 isn't the end of the book, but at the end of chapter 21, we see this wonderful phrase, not one of all the Lord's promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. And as we've noted throughout, uh, the, certainly the first 12 chapters of Joshua that we've looked at so far, one of the key aspects of that promise that God gave to the people of Israel in this time was the land. And so this was the generation of people who were seeing the fulfillment. Indeed, they were setting their foot on the promise of God. God had told Abraham back in Genesis 12, then again repeated in 15 and 17, I will give your descendants the land of Canaan. And now this generation, under the leadership of Joshua, have left slavery in Egypt, come sort of the long way around due to some unfaithfulness, and now they are the generation who are setting foot in the land of Canaan. They are seeing God's fulfill, fulfillment of God's promise right in front of them. And, and that's why it's important that we see not just the end of verse 45 of chapter 21 like, that we've read already, but if we go back a couple of verses we see how the people knew that not one of the Lord's promises had failed. How, how could they be so sure of that? How did they know that to be true? Well, it was because of the land. See, if you read with me in chapter 21, verse 43, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he, swore, he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Can you see that the completeness of God's fulfillment of his promises here? Just look at some of these notes that I've made, that are references that I've pulled out, that God gave all, the Lord gave all the land to his people. He gave them rest on every side. Not one of their enemies withstood them. He gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the Lord's good promises, indeed not one of all the Lord's good promises have failed. Every one was fulfilled. Dale Ralph Davis calls this little section sledgehammer theology. where It's as if the, the theme is being pummeled home. God is faithful to his promises. Not one of them is failed everyone has come to pass. And I realize we've got a wee bit to go, but stay with me here for a minute. Because some of us need to recognize this truth. It's as if we've gone right back to the start. It's been a theme throughout every week so far. God's promises are unbreakable. Today we're going to see the outworking of that. 
But some of us need to be reminded by God through his word, by his spirit, that what he has said is true. And what he has said will come to be. And what he has said can therefore be trusted. You see, some of us know the promises of God or some of the promises of God. Maybe we've read them before. Maybe we've heard people talk about them before. Maybe we've even read books about the promises of God. But maybe we believed it in our heads, therefore, but our hearts haven't yet fully become entrenched in the assurance that they are true. If I could put it like this, is is it possible that we might know God's promises to be true in theory? But sometimes we demonstrate that we don't know them to be true in the way that we practice. There's a disconnect We know God said this. We know God said it, so it must be true, but maybe it's not quite true for me now. Maybe it's true for someone else. Maybe it's true at a different time, but for me in this circumstances, I just just can't make that jump, God, to believe that that promise could be true when I'm going through what I'm going through. So, for example, maybe we know that he promises his presence with his people, even when things are difficult. We know that to be true. Yet, when we find ourselves going through tough times, do we ever question if he's withdrawn, if he's left us, if he's abandoned us? But we, we know the theory that, no, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Yeah, but God, all the evidence seems to show something else. Maybe we know that he's promised that his mercy is new every morning. Yet, every morning I wake up, I feel so unworthy to receive it. How can that be true? It might be true for the others who I sit around or sit beside me on a Sunday morning, but it can't be true of me. We know his promise that there is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. Yet I can't stop that condemning voice in my own head of myself and of others. We we know the theory to be true, but our practice sometimes doesn't show that we are embedded in the reality of it. And so for this small selection of some of God's promises, which may resonate with some of us, how we need to hear the truth, the the biblical, therefore unshakable truth, that not one of all of the Lord's good promises can fail. Not one. They haven't failed for the Israelites in Joshua's time. They haven't failed for centuries of God's people. They will never fail for all of eternity to come. God said it, therefore it's true. So, so we don't need that when we read and when we encounter the promises of God, we don't need to wonder whether it's true for now for me. God has said it, therefore it is so. And whatever, whatever promise we see of the Lord in Scripture, that is true. His word is eternal. His word is life-giving. His word is what we can abide in. And as we abide in him, Don't we grow as his vine connected to him, the branch? God has said it, it is so, not one of all the Lord's good promises have failed. And so if if we're God's people today, let's live like we truly believe it. It's not just true for Joshua and the Israelites here as they see the land come into their possession. But it is true of all God's people. And let's believe it, not only in theory, but also in our practice. And doesn't chapter 21, verses 43 to 45, help us see that? 
all the land, every side, not one of their enemies. All their enemies were subdued. Not one of all the Lord's good promises. Everyone was fulfilled. God's word is true and faithful and right, and we can trust in it. And so we can know the certainty in the promises of God. That's been a common theme throughout. Indeed, back in week one, we recognized that the certainty in God's promises can lead to courage in the obedience of his people. And that's true still, isn't it? And we've seen some examples of that in the first 12 chapters of Joshua. We've seen some faithful examples, faith-filled, obedient living. And we'll see it again today as we look at some of those examples But that reality of of an obedient, faith-filled life is possible because of the certainty of the promise of God. And so regardless for us as readers and followers of Jesus today, regardless of our experiences of the past, regardless of our circumstances of the present, regardless of the uncertainties of the future, we can act on the basis of God's unshakable, certain promise. And that is good news for us as his people. Hang on a minute. How did we get from the end of chapter 12 to the end of chapter 21? That's a bit of a jump. Well, that's the jump we're going to do today. So you might have thought that 9 to 12 was a big chunk. Today we're going to look at chapters 13 to 21. And we're going to read it. No, we're not going to read it all. Um, But as we do that, and, and you'll see this will hopefully become clear. As we do that, I wanted us to begin with this end in view, this celebration of the faithfulness of God. The reality that the land represents the fulfillment of God's faithful promise to his people. Because everything that we see between 13 and 21 is pointing to that. And so we might read chapters 13 through to 21. And and we might very wrongly perceive them to be some dry and dusty details of land and towns and settlements and inheritance. But in this major middle section of the book, one of the key things we read is the land of Canaan now being divided up among the tribes of Israel. And in many ways for us, through our 21st century's eye, 21st century eyes and minds and hearts, some of us may find this a difficult section to read through. I, I get that. Portions of, this, portions of these chapters feel a long way from the miracle of the Jordan River or the drama of Jericho. But these are still passages of God's holy, inspired, profitable scripture. So, so why has God given us Uh, these detailed lists of places and geographical landmarks in his word. Well, I think that's why we need to start with the end in view. If we're wondering why these details are here, then let's jump to 21, verse 43 to 45. We see actually that all of that is pointing towards the reality that not one of the Lord's promises has failed. And that's the conclusion that we must come to when we read 13 to 21. David Firth has really helpfully said in commenting on those later verses, perhaps that is why the book needs to come to this point of doxology, this point of praise, worship, in order to remind us that this is not simply a list of distant towns. Rather, it is a ringing declaration of the faithfulness of God. That's what this middle section of Joshua, one of the things this middle section of Joshua is teaching us. You see, the the detail that we'll see within this section helps us to see the depth and the breadth and the fullness of, of God's faithfulness to his promise. Now, granted, we might not see that on our first read through. I get that. I understand that. But for the people of Israel then, for generations after, and as God's people now, we can view texts of scripture like this with great gratitude 
because they show us that the promises of God aren't just certain, but they also show us that the promises of God are full of detail. That yes, we can have certainty in the promises of God, but then we can know that there's great detail in the promises of God. You see, God, yes, totally and fully promised the land, but he didn't just leave it general. He made it specific. He he didn't just give vague impressions and then leave his people to figure it out. No, he was with them intimately at every step. He'd previously given instructions on what should happen through Moses, as Moses then passed that on to Joshua. And he intended then and continued to give that kind of direction to Joshua and the people as they now divide up the land in these chapters. And, and the detail, this, this um, very intricate level of detail might confuse us at times, but that's just because we don't necessarily instinctively appreciate the enormity of what they're showing. That every town that's mentioned, every boundary that's drawn is another evidence of God's remarkable faithfulness to his promise. And if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of the, of the first hearers, indeed the first receivers of this land, we would know that more truly. This promise carried unshakable certainty. And the certainty of that promise was being fulfilled with unmissable detail. And so there's the certainty of the promise. There's the detail in the promise, and we'll get in and explore both of those a little bit more. But as we take a survey of these chapters in a little bit more detail, let me show you just the third thing, uh, or a third thing that becomes clear as we move through these chapters. We have the certainty in the pro- uh, of the promise, detail of the promise, and then we have uh, the response to that promise. And we see a varying response of people. Um, it's striking in these chapters that, that we do see a great deal of inconsistency in the response as the, of the people as a whole. There are some positive examples of great faithfulness and boldness and obedience and courage. So jo- Joshua himself is one. Caleb is another. And we see some tribes just go and inherit the land that they're given and it's done. But yet we also see in others a, a readiness to complain and to grumble and to compromise. And so two of the Joseph tribes do that at the end of chapter 17 and we'll get to that in a few minutes. So we see this mixed bag of reactions to the promises of God. The promise is certain, the promise is detailed, but people respond to it differently. Some faithfully, boldly, others seem to stumble their way through. And so we have these at least three main lessons that we can take from this large chunk of the book of Joshua. From chapter 13 to chapter 21, we see the certainty in God's promise. We see the detail of that promise, and then we see the people's response to it. So let's, let's make our way through uh, some of these verses uh, or some of these chapters. And um, we'll obviously, as I said, not read them all, but please do take the time to, to scan them. I'd really recommend um, uh, a Bible, a study Bible or a Bible atlas or somewhere where you can actually see. Uh, I'll show a map later, but we'll see, so you can see the, the intricacy of what's being shown here to help bring that um, to, to its full appreciation. So as we left chapter 12... Uh, We had seen some advancement of the people through the land uh, area where they'd been uh, stationed at Gilgal area to the south and the north. Bits of that had been been conquered. And then chapter 13 begins uh, with a definite change in tone and pace, it seems. Let's read verse 1 of chapter 13. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old, and there are still very large areas of the land to be taken over. So even though we've seen uh, success militarily and and conquering of the land, taking possession of some of the land, there's still lots to be done. It's maybe a hint that maybe all is not well yet. Uh, The job is not finished yet. In the Lord's mind, and the Lord's eye, there's still much to do. But God is not suggesting at all that he's in any way letting his people 
letting up on his effort. Um, so he, he explains then the area that remains and then picking up it up in verse 6 again. As for the inhabitants of the mountain regions from Lebanon to Mizrafoth, uh, Mizrafoth Main, that is the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before you Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel for an inheritance as I have instructed you and divide it as an inheritance among the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. And so God is continuing to move here on the behalf of his people. I will myself will drive them out before you. And indeed then as Joshua continues to allocate the land, that is in response to what the Lord has instructed him to do. And so God is still remarkably active here. There's still much to do, but God will go before his people as they need to continue to obey. And so again, we see this interplay between God's activity and the people's activity. That just because God is at work doesn't mean the people sit idle. But equally, just because the people should be at work doesn't mean that God can't be trusted for being, doing his uh, part too. So it's not the case that he's promised the land and now it's just up to them to make it happen. No, as we noted last time in a, in a similar quote, actually, Dale Ralph Davis mentions in thinking about this chapter, Yahweh has promised the land, and yet it must be possessed. It is Yahweh's gift, and yet that does not cancel human responsibility. Yahweh's promises are intended not as sedatives, but as stimulants. See, the reality that the Lord had given the land, as we said two weeks ago, was to be fuel for the people to say, right, let's go and take it then. The Lord has given it. It is all the Lord but we must go and take possession of it. God promises his people must step into that promise. And that sounds good. Maybe even that sounds inspiring, but we're brought back down to the reality in verse 13 of chapter 13. Uh, as some of the, east, the tribes east of the Jordan, we see explained in verse 13, but the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Mecca, so they continue to live among the Israelites to this day. Uh, and this is the first hint that things aren't going to go all well as people respond to the promise of God. God had clearly commanded, go and drive out all the people. And this is the first of at least four occasions where we see the tribes didn't do that in totality. We see it in Judah in chapter 15. We see it with Ephraim in chapter 16, Manasseh in chapter 17. They don't drive them all out. And I wonder, wonder what lies at the heart of that inability to drive them out. Manasseh, when we hear in Manasseh in chapter 17, it's very interestingly phrased that in chapter 17, verse 12, yet the, Mas uh, that yet the Masonites were not able to occupy these towns for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. So, so in other words, for Manasseh, the Canaanites were too strong. But, but that doesn't seem to tie with what God has promised them. They, they couldn't drive them all out. Some of them were forced into to, to forced labor for a time to serve the Israelites. But there was something in the not driving out that would then lead to future compromise. That is why, back in Deuteronomy, God had made that clear. You must drive them out so there's no remnant of unfaithfulness that can filter its way back into my people. And indeed, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God had said, When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, well, that's what happened when the people advanced. And what were they supposed to do? Do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt will go with you. And so the promise is certain. Go, take possession of the land, and I will go with you. The promise is detailed. You must go even if the army looks huge. I am with you, and I am greater than they. But the faltering response is what we see. 
it seems that the Israelites allowed the enemy in front of them to loom larger in their sight than the certain and detailed promise of their God. And once again, as we, as we endure a sense of disappointment with the Israelite people in their inability to follow through on the promises of God is how we read this. We're quickly confronted with the mirror of Scripture, aren't we? How guilty am I of also looking at the enemy in front of me or the circumstances I'm going through and allowing those things to loom larger in my sight than the promise of God? How guilty am I of allowing the enemy in front of me or the circumstances in the midst of, that I'm in the midst of to loom larger in my sight than the promise of God, that promise which is certain, that promise which is detailed, and yet I respond with quivering knees. Uh, So the reality is the same for us as it was for them. God's promise is true. Not one of them can fail. And so may we, as God's people now, may we see the certainty of that promise and may it drive us to a courageous obedience. So that's a little bit of chapter 13. The rest of chapter 13 then talks about how that, that land east of the Jordan was divided up between the two and a half tribes who stayed there. Which, and all of that had been arranged with Moses in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. We saw it again at the end of chapter 1 of Joshua. And then chapter 14, uh, we see the division of the land west of the Jordan. And so we see uh, this sort of new, there's a bit of an introduction here in the first five verses of chapter 14, which I'd love to read because it sets the stall out for what is to come. So let's read the first five verses of chapter 14. Now, these are the areas the Israelites received and as an inheritance in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel allotted to them. Their inheritances were assigned by lot to nine and a half tribes, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Moses had granted the two and a half tribes their inheritance east of the Jordan, but had not granted the Levites an inheritance among the rest. For Joseph's descendants had become two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. The Levites received no share of the land, but only towns to live in, with pasture lands for their flocks and herds. So the Israelites divided the land just as the Lord commanded them. And so here we have this prelude of what's to come, that the land is going to be divided. And it's interesting to note just a clarification of the numbers here. There are 12 tribes of Israel, yes, but there there is no tribe of Joseph. Joseph, according to Genesis 48, Joseph's inheritance was split between two of his children, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, quick maths within the room would say, well, that would make 13 in total, but the Levites don't get an inheritance of land. Their inheritance, as we're told in in Deuteronomy 10, their inheritance is the Lord himself. They are the the tribe who will serve the Lord as his priests and, and serve in that way. And so that's how we get to 12. And so they, the Levites will be provided for in other ways, maybe not necessarily with whole regions of land, but they will be provided for. And in those five verses of chapter 14, we see this repetition of the Lord commanded as the Lord commanded. This is a positive sign. They are doing things just as the Lord commanded. We see it in verse 2 and again in verse 5. There's nothing accidental, nothing coincidental about how the land will be spread out. This is as the Lord commanded. It's what he said would happen, should happen, and it is going to come. Even the idea we read there of casting lots, that may sound foreign to us, but that was the practice that the Lord had installed to show that he would determine the result of the lot. So this wasn't chance or fate or a roll of a dice. 
This was God showing his way, showing his will by even demonstrating uh, through the, the result of a lot that was cast. And that was great assurance, not just for Joshua and the people, uh, but it was great assurance that then they would know that the land that they were given was the Lord's choice for them. This was not just about some clever strategy of a, of a geographer sitting with a map. Uh, yes, there needed to be diligence on the people who were responding, but this was led and directed by God. Chapter 14 then goes on uh, to, to detail uh, the story of Caleb. Now, Leslie is going to be speaking on this next week, and so I don't want, there's a, it's a wonderful example. Caleb is an incredible man of faith, and so I don't want to steal too much of that for next week, but we see it. We see a great, we see Caleb held up here. Caleb, that comrade of, of Joshua from, back from Numbers 13 and 14, when they were one of the, they were two of the 12 sent in to spy out the land. They were the two who came back and said, the land is great. Let's go for it. God will give it to us. The other 10 naysayers said, no way, that's too hard. And so Caleb and Joshua are the only two of that remnant who are then taken into the land. And by the time we get to uh, Joshua 14, Caleb is now 85 years old and he comes to Joshua and says, give me the land. I have still got the strength that I had 45 years ago. And so with the bit of God's promise between his teeth and with this belly full of faith, he is ready to take on a really difficult part of the land. And so Caleb is held up as this towering example of a faithful response to the certain and detailed promise of God. Chapter 15 then provides the, um, the understanding of uh, the division of the land and it starts with Judah. As I said, I find it helpful here to have a map just to try to contextualize a little bit of this. Oh, thanks, Tim. And so we see in chapter 15, uh, Judah is given its land. And you can see straight away from the map, this is a large area. Now, Simeon's inheritance will be within the land of Judah. Um, but you can see that Judah is a very uh, dominant tribe. And there's reasons for that, which we can look at this evening, hopefully, if, if you come back to Life Group. Then chapter 16 and 17 show Ephraim and Manasseh's inheritance. Uh, and that ends with their complaints at the end of chapter 17. So they're given this land, yet they complain about it. They grumble about it. They say that it's not big enough. They are too big as tribes to fit into this area that they've been given. There's a big forested area that Joshua tells them to go and take then. Extend your, extend your barrier to include that forested area. And they said, no, it's too hard. And the, the enemy is too strong. And then uh, Joshua says something wonderful as he re returns to them at the end of chapter 17. So if you have your Bible open and are trying to keep up with me, uh, 17, chapter 17, verse 17. Joshua said to the tribes of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are n numerous and very powerful. You will, have, you will have not only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it, and its farthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. You can drive them out. Joshua's faith again is being held up here as a, almost a mirror to Ephraim and Manasseh who are saying, we can't. And Joshua said, you can, because God has sent it. Remember that promise from Deuteronomy 20? God has said that you will come across armies that look bigger than yours, chariots of iron, and I am with you, so go. And it's a great encouragement. Indeed, there's a challenge in it there to say, if you want to fully and faithfully live out the promise of God, it's not just that you can go and take them, you should, you need to. And so their negative example is one of the ways in which they stand in stark contrast to Caleb and to Joshua, the faithful responders to the promise of God, and then Ephraim and Manasseh, who say, we can't, we can't. Caleb knew that his God could, 
his God would. Ephraim and Manasseh say, we can't. And doesn't that show where their hearts were lying? Indeed, Doug Johnson really helpfully unpicks what lies beneath their complaints. In the end, their dissatisfaction is not with Joshua, Johnson says, but with the Lord. At root, their problem is that they are not content with the promise of God. They are not convinced he will continue to keep it. And as we read it, we, that's sad. But again, perhaps we see that in our own lives. We're discontent with the promises of God. But his promises are certain. His promises are detailed. And so we must respond with faith and obedience and trust. Things shift then at the start of chapter 18. The whole assembly gathers at Shiloh. And this is where the rest of the land will be divided out. And it seems actually that Joshua is starting to get a bit frustrated. In verse 3 of chapter 18, Joshua said to the Israelites, How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? How long are you going to wait? God has given you it. Why have you not gone to take it? And so then there's scouts sent out. They, they map out the land. They, they decide what area is good for, uh, can, can, can cope with what size of population. And then that is brought back and lots are cast for each remaining tribe. And, and I think we should remember this is, again, a faith-filled exercise, not a faithless one. This isn't Joshua impatiently saying, all right, well, then let's do things my way. No, he's actually very much putting things back into God's hand to say, show us where we can go and send the people out. And so the map fills in, and we see Benjamin gets his uh, inheritance, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, Dan. That takes us all the way through chapter 18 and 19. And chapter 19 finishes then with Joshua's allotment. He gets his inheritance too. And we end in verse 51 of chapter 19. These are the territories that Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clan of Israel assigned by Lot at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And so they finished dividing the land. It's like a line drawn, a deep breath. But remember, and did you recognize this was all done in the presence of God under his guidance? It was done at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. God was all over the direction of this process. And so the land is divided at the end of chapter 19. Then chapter 20 and 21, they complete some of the details of, of, by designating cities of refuge and also then what will happen with the Levites in chapter 21. Again, we could miss this, but the overarching theme through these two chapters is that God will graciously provide. Cities of refuge were designated for someone who had accidentally killed somebody. And so rather than that person's death being avenged by the family, that person who accidentally caused the death could, could flee to a city of refuge, explain their story. The elders of that town could take them in and they could live safely. So it was graciously providing for someone. And again, when we think of the Levites, they are graciously provided for by the whole community. And so within each tribe, a certain area of that tribe is given to the Levites for their pasture lands and for them to look after their own families. But not only that, it's a gracious provision for the whole community because the Levites are scattered throughout the whole nation. And that is done, we see in chapter 20, that is done as the Lord commanded. And I think that's very intentional. It's a protective measure of God to say, I'm going to send my priests throughout his people, throughout my people, so that I can nurture a living relationship with me. God's gracious provision 
and the fulfillment of his promise. That's chapter 20 and 21, and that takes us back to the end of chapter 21, verse 43 to 45. So, and how, how poignant that word so is. After all of that detail, we've whistled through it, I get it, but after all of that detail, how God can then say, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Every one was fulfilled. And so with this broad sweep of nine chapters of this great book, and we have missed out, unfortunately, lots of really worthy and important details. There's brilliant other uh, snippets of stories in here which demonstrate the faithfulness of God to his people. And so if we were to move slowly through the text, we would see that. But for this morning, when we stand back and see the bigger picture at play, don't we enjoy the outworking of God's faithfulness to his promise? That promise which is certain. That promise which is detailed. That promise which, yes, is responded to in various ways, but the example that's held up for us is let's be Joshua's, let's be Caleb's. In fact, that's not even right. Let's trust in God and live as his people. And so may we be those who know the truth of God's promises, yes, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, with our hands, that our feet are planted on them, May we be comforted by the intricate detail of God's promises. That he knows us better than we know ourselves and therefore we, he can be trusted even in the midst of difficulty. He can be trusted more than we can trust ourselves indeed. And therefore, because of the certainty in his promise, because of the detail of his promise, may we respond with full and open and courageous obedience as we seek to live a life of freedom in faith to the one who is ever faithful. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it is timeless, it is eternal, it is indeed inspired. And so, Father, as we read in these pages, these are not dry words on a page. This is your word breathed out for us. And yet, God, we recognize that there are passages that, to, to our own personalities and preferences, um, we, we don't always see the depth that you're trying to communicate. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that this morning we would revel in the faithfulness of your word. Father, that we would know the certainty of your promises to your people. Lord, we would recognize that you don't just I give headline promises, but you give the detail and you walk every step with your people. And therefore, Father, would we respond with openness, with obedience, with a desire to see your kingdom extended, your name lifted high. Lord, we do thank you for the examples that we see in these, verse, in these chapters. We thank you for the positive examples of, of folks like Joshua and Caleb. But also, Father, we thank you for holding up a mirror to us where we see uh, the examples of those like Ephraim and Manasseh. And we recognize, Father, that, that our hearts are weak. And our, our following of you may be stumbling and faltering at times. 
But Lord, thank you that in your grace and by your mercy, you pick us up. And we pray that you would set our feet on your path again and lead us on to whatever the next step might be. Thank you, Father, that we can fully and totally trust in your word. And so I pray that you'd help us to be people of your word, grounded in it and living it out. It's in your wonderful name we pray. And for the extension of your kingdom we ask. Amen.